Well, this weekend we continue through 1 Peter, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. I titled this sermon, He Said the S Word, because Peter is going to use profane and offensive language in this passage. It's not profane and offensive in the traditional sense, but to modern ears, it's very profane. The S word that he uses is the word submission. Submission is an extremely offensive concept to modern man. Nonetheless, it's a powerful tool in the Christian's life. God has created the world with order. He has created a world that has uh, authority figures, and he intends for us to live within those structures that he has created. And one of the things that he calls us to do in the midst of that is to submit. And uh, Peter's going to call us to submit in a couple of different areas. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, and deal with this word that we hate so much. He says in verse 13, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as, as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 18, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, by a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor from God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, that's a lot to deal with in one sermon, and the submission passage does not end there. Next week, we're going to look at the second part of that. But I want to deal with this part of it. And if you're, if you're new to this series, or even if you've been watching and following along through this series, let me just go back and remind you of a couple of important things. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians where he calls them to live, as we've titled this series, as strangers on the earth. What it means to be a stranger on the earth, I've, I've tried to con- put down into a little definition. That definition is this, that strangers on the earth are the people of God who have been granted citizenship in a far better country through faith in Jesus Christ, but now live temporarily in this world seeking to obey and glorify God. So we're called to live in this world, but we're not citizens of this world. Ultimately, we're citizens of a far greater country and a far greater kingdom, and that's the kingdom of King Jesus. 
But while we live temporarily in this world, we seek to live out our lives as strangers, knowing this isn't our home. This isn't where we belong. That We're going to be different than the people who see this as their home. And so while we live here, we seek to obey and glorify God. That's what it means to be strangers on the earth. And so here's the main idea. And if you have the handout, you can uh, fill in some of the blanks here. The main idea of this sermon is this. Strangers act righteously even when treated unjustly. Strangers act righteously even when treated unjustly. Came across a really cool story this week as I was uh, getting ready for this sermon. On April 11, 1981, 12 days after John Hinckley Jr.'s failed assassination attempt, Ronald Reagan transcribed, in his, transcribed his near-death experience into his personal journal. Listen to what President Reagan said. He said, getting shot hurts. Still, my fear was growing because no matter how hard I tried to breathe, it seemed I was getting less and less air. I focused on that tiled ceiling and prayed, but I realized I couldn't ask for God's help while at the same time, I felt hatred for the mixed up young man who had shot me. Isn't that the meaning of the lost sheep, he says? We are all God's children and therefore equally beloved by him. I began to pray for his soul and that he would find his way back to the fold. Powerful words from a man who served as president who also uh, survived an attempted assassination. The commentator said that this of that passage says, even when facing death, Reagan chose to see the best in his enemies. Reagan replaced the justified anger in his heart with empathy and forgiveness towards his would-be assassin. He refused to harden his heart towards the people he had been elected to govern. I think what First Peter is calling us to here is a similar heart. A heart that even when we're treated unjustly by unjust people, that we refuse to allow our hearts to be hardened. That we willingly submit when it's God's will and that we, that we fight to keep love in our hearts for the people who are doing us wrong. Acting righteously, which is what I've said we've been called to here, in this passage is described as submission. Peter calls us to submit in three different areas, towards government, slaves towards their masters, and then in the passage that we'll look at next week, wives towards their husbands. Our submission, this is the next thing on the handout, our submission to those who are unjust has a purpose, though. That purpose is God's glory, our good, and the salvation of the lost. I want to encourage us towards submission by reminding us, first of all, of the good that God seeks to accomplish through our submission. He's looking for glory for himself, which is God's ultimate goal in the universe, is that he would be glorified, and that by being glorified, men would enjoy him and experience him. He's looking for our good, and we'll look at some of the places uh, in this passage where it says that, and ultimately the salvation of the lost. If you want to see God's glory, if you want your good, and you want the salvation of the lost, then submission is an important thing to consider. If we go back to what we looked at last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he said, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. There's, there's, first of all, God's glory in this passage. That's obvious, right? But there's an implied good for the people who are glorifying him. It seems as though these people have seen the goodness of God through the submissive acts and the, and, and the enduring of unjust treatment of God's people 
and that they have chosen now to glorify him. In our passage today, in verses 19 and 20, Peter says, For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. And then he says this important statement. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? In other words, if you screw up and you're just receiving the just punishment for something you've done, you don't get any credit for that. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, it brings favor with God. It brings favor with God to your life. It, it brings the goodness of God to your life. It brings his kindness. It brings his favor when we endure suffering for doing good. That should be incredible motivation to us to endure the unjust deeds of the unjust people of this world. When we do good, when we live our lives for God, and when we do what he has called us to do, and yet we suffer for it, we're even better off for it. The Bible tells us that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He actually makes us better off if we suffer for doing good. That's incredible motivation. Our submission to those who are unjust has a purpose. God's glory, our good, and the salvation of the lost. This isn't just submission for submission's sake. This isn't just be weak-willed people. This isn't, this isn't a call to be some sort of doormat for the world to step on. This is a call for God's glory, your good, and the salvation of the lost to come through your submission, at least in three areas. And the first, as we've already mentioned, the next thing on the handout is this. Strangers submit to unjust governments. Here's the crazy thing about this passage, uh, and I did not plan this. This is just where this passage fell. Um, what we're going to talk about this weekend is government and slavery. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's an intimidating task because there's sort of a lot going on in the world in terms of government and slavery, uh, but it's very encouraging to know that the Bible speaks to these issues. Now, what the Bible says about governments cannot, certainly cannot be summarized in what I'm going to do in this sermon today, um, but our concern here is what does First Peter chapter 2 say about government? And so I want to I take a, a close look at that and then maybe point to some of the broader things that the Bible says about government as well. But let's just please be fair here and understand we can't possibly cover everything the Bible says about government and our relationship to government in the next few minutes. However, in our text today, this is what Peter says. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, I love that phrase, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Okay, so the first, the, the first and, and most obvious thing here is that Peter and the Bible call us to submit to governing authorities to submit to our government leaders. He lived in a world where there was an emperor, so he uses the word emperor. Obviously, we have a president, and we have a whole, a whole governmental branch uh, that falls underneath the president. And then we have local government, and we have, uh, we have all kinds of authorities that have been established mostly underneath that office of president. 
So there's a supreme authority, or in verse 14 it says, to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. And so underneath the supreme authority, you have lesser authorities who have been commissioned by that supreme authority to punish those who do bad and to reward those who do good. Okay, That's the general idea. Some interesting things to note about this. First of all, let's be clear that this is, these are instructions written to Christians. This is not written to non-Christians. Everything the Bible commands Christians to do isn't necessarily meant for us to take and demand non-Christians do the same. The Bible is not concerned with instructing non-Christians how to behave. The Bible has one primary message for non-Christians, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And then you become a Christian and then you follow everything that the Bible says towards Christians. But this is instructions for us. It's not necessarily instructions on how to set up a government. It's not necessarily instructions on how to lead a country. It's instructions for Christians who are underneath the authority of a government. And so that's important to note. The next thing we want to point out here is that the Bible treats governments, although they are imperfect, as good things. The Bible has a good view of government. And trust me, most of the people who ruled in the biblical stories and in the biblical narrative were far worse than any of the leaders that we have today. I mean, there are some nasty, nasty leaders. Nonetheless, the Bible treats government as a good thing. Government is a blessing. Government is, brings good, general, generally speaking, okay? The government has the power and the ability and the commission to bring good to those who do good and to bring punishment to those who do wrong. And so government's a good thing. That's why Paul would say, and I'm going to talk about the government that, that Peter and Paul lived under in a minute, but that's why Paul would say in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, he says something similar, but he expounds on it. He says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. So every authority on earth ultimately comes from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists authority is opposing God's command. Paul is is taking unjust governments and saying, if you resist those, you're resisting God. That's a very interesting parallel to draw. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For for it is God's servant for your good, speaking of government. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligation to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. You might read this and think, man, Peter and Paul must have lived under this really great government. They're so eager to obey. They're so eager to submit to their government. They're, they're, Paul's calling on Christians to pay taxes. He must be impressed at what the, the rulers of that day were doing with the tax dollars collected. Let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. 
These governments at times persecuted Peter and Paul and other Christians. These governments were known for for their injustices. These governments were known for mismanagement of taxes, okay? This this is not a command given to people who who lived in this perfect government structure. It's a command given to people who were familiar with the injustices that exist within human government. And those injustices always exist within human government. And those injustices will always exist within human government. That's not to say we're uh, apathetic about that. It's not to say that we don't care about the injustices among government. It's not to say that we have no responsibility to hold government accountable. The Bible doesn't say any uh, any of that. It simply says here, though, that government is used by God to punish those who do evil, to reward those who do good, and that it is an instrument in God's hands. Therefore, when we submit to human government, we are submitting to God and His rule as well. That's a profound, profound statement that Peter and Paul are making collectively here. It's not the way we typically think of government. It's not the way I typically think of government. I don't typically assume that everything our our government is, I I lose sight of the fact, let me say, that everything our government does is within God's sovereign control and that ultimately he's overseeing this process. That, I mean, raises more questions than it answers, I I realize, but yet this this is the biblical response to government. In fact, Peter calls Christians to submit to a government that was much worse than ours somewhere around two years after Peter writes this letter, the emperor, who in our passage today, he calls on Christians to submit to, that emperor, the emperor Nero, will actually have Peter and a whole bunch of other Christians unjustly killed. He, there was a fire in Rome that destroyed much of, of, the, of the city of Rome, and instead of taking the heat for it, and some say he actually started it, he actually blamed it on Christians and used that as an excuse to persecute Christians. Not a great governor, not a great emperor, not a great leader. Nonetheless, Peter and Paul recognize that this is God's way of carrying out his will in the world. It's part of how he carries out his will in the world. Okay, so Peter calls Christians to submit to a government that was much worse than ours. Now, having said all of that, there are clearly times when we should disobey the government. That's absolutely true. That's why I I gave a disclaimer that I can't possibly talk about everything the Bible says about our response to government in, in just a few minutes that we have here. But there are times when we should disobey. I'll give you an example of this uh, that involves Peter in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. This won't be on the slides. I'll just read it. It says, So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. This were some of the religious leaders who were part of the local government at that time. Some of the religious leaders who were speaking to Peter and saying, you got to stop talking about Jesus. You can't keep preaching this message about Jesus dying for the sins of, of people and rising from the dead. We, we forbid you from preaching that message. Peter says, along with John, it says, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For what we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so it's complex, right? It's, there's no simple answer to how we should respond to government. But the, 
the, the found, the, the, let's say our starting point where we should begin as Christians and where Peter and Paul and all of the Bible call us to is to submit and to allow the leaders to be leaders and to submit to the authorities that God has put in place. He says in verse 16, I'm going back to our passage now in 1 Peter chapter 2, submit as free people. I like that because free people don't have to submit. This is a willing act of service and submission. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. So don't use your freedom for bad. Use your freedom for good, which is defined here as submitting to the government. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What a great summary statement. Honor everyone. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God above all. Fear God and honor the emperor. That's the kind of life Christians are called to. Now, what does that mean for us today? And what are the nuances of this and all of the practical applications and stuff? And you know, I don't, I don't pretend to have all those answers. We certainly don't have time uh, to figure that all out today. But my, my, my goal here today was to point us to the message of 1 Peter chapter 2, submit to the government, submit to human authority, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. This is what Christians should do. Next, strangers submit to unjust masters. Strangers submit to unjust masters. Now we talk about slavery. Slavery is a... <sighs> Slavery is a pretty hot topic right now, and it's an important topic in the Bible. It comes up several times in the Bible. It comes up several times in the New Testament. That's because that the world that the New Testament believers lived in was full of slaves. It's, it's, it's estimated in, in, in some places that within the Roman Empire, which is where these Christians lived, that more than half of the population were slaves. But there are some things that are different about the slavery that existed then that are, that are different than how we think of slavery because of our American experience and especially because of what's going on today. And then there are a lot of similarities too. It's not like they're completely different things. I'm not saying that. But there are enough differences that if we're not aware of the differences, we won't understand what the Bible is calling us to do. So here's the message. Verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Household slaves... Submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, that's the important part here, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. I read this part earlier. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it, but when you do what is good and suffer, you endure it. This brings favor with God. Okay, household slaves. All right, the reason that's translated household slaves and not just slaves is because there's a Greek word for there's a there's a Greek word that was common for the for to uh, refer to slaves. Peter doesn't use that word; he uses a different Greek word, and there's some debate over exactly how that should be translated. The CSB goes with household slaves, which many translations do. It's it's not a bad distinction to make uh, from just regular slaves. All right, household slaves submit to your masters. And what's crazy is he says, not just to the good ones, but to the bad. And then he uses a really, really difficult example because he refers to being beaten. Is Peter 
calling slaves to uh, allow themselves to be beaten by their masters? Well, there's some debate over that. Um, certainly, the point that Peter's trying to make here is not whether or not slaves should be beaten by their masters. And, and we'll talk a little bit about what the Bible says about slavery in general and whether or not it's a good idea. Um, but the point that he's concerned with is that if you're going to live in a world where you're treated unjustly, submit yourself because of a consciousness to God that God could bring good out of the unjust treatment that you experience. That's the point he's trying to make. That's what he's concerned with. He's not concerned with whether or not slaves should be uh, beaten by their masters. He's saying if you live in a world where unjust things happen, here's good news for you. And that's really important for us to understand because we always have and always will until Jesus comes and sets things and, and turns things around and does something drastically different, which he will one day do in the future. Until that day comes, we live in an unjust world where unjust things will happen. So the question isn't whether or not those unjust things should happen. Of course they shouldn't happen. We assume that. The question is, what should, what should be our response as Christians in a world where unjust things happen to us and they happen regularly? And Peter's answer is, I've got some really good news for you. If you'll surrender yourself to God and if you'll submit to the authority over you out of a consciousness for God, and if you, if you are in the unfortunate position of where you suffer for doing good, God brings good out of that. It's possible that God can receive glory. It's possible that you will receive good. And it's possible that lost can be saved. And he employs all three of those motivations throughout this passage. He picks different ones at different times. Here in this passage, he, he chooses to go with the favor that it brings to us. So our good. He points us back to our good. Hey, if, you go, if you're treated unjustly, if you happen to be a slave and you're, you're treated unjustly by your master, if you're one of the unfortunate people who work for a cruel slave and you sometimes suffer, perhaps maybe you're even beaten. And, and again, it's unclear if he's tying that back to the slave and master relationship. But if you're even beaten for doing good, take heart. Take heart because there's a God who's in control of this world and because he's sovereign and he's in control and because he's good and because he's aware of your circumstances and because his attitude towards you is love and mercy, he's going to bring good out of that. He has the ability and he has the desire to give you favor, to bless you, to care for you, to bring about his glory, your good, and the salvation of the lost when we go through unjust things and remain righteous in the midst of them. That's why this, that's why this whole thing is a call to act righteously when we're treated unjustly so that God can be glorified, so that we can receive good, and so that the lost can be saved. Okay, so that's, I think, the point of that part of our passage. So let's talk about slavery a little bit. This passage does not advocate for slavery, all right? It just, just simply does not advocate for slavery in any way, shape, or form, just because it's instructing people on how to behave, how, uh, instructing Christians on how to behave when they're treated unjustly does not mean that it approves of the unjust treatment of those slaves, right? Okay? Um, slave, though there were without question many injustices involved in the slavery of that day, this is not the slavery of early America, 
This is not just predominantly one race enslaving another race based solely on the color of their skin and using them the way that they were used in the slavery of early America. It's not the same thing. There are similarities. I'm not saying that this was some good form of slavery. It was slavery. It stunk. It was not good for the people who were enslaved necessarily, right? It wasn't always the worst thing that could happen to them um, because many of these people, like I said, it's estimated that perhaps more than half of the citizens in the Roman Empire were slaves. Uh, that people became slaves because of debt. People became slaves because of war. If they were part of a people that were conquered, uh, they would perhaps be taken into slavery. Um, they became slaves because they were born into families of slaves, and uh, their masters r- retained them as slaves as they were born and brought up as children. Uh, but there were some differences. Uh, many of these slaves were actually well-educated, especially those who uh, came into slavery either through debt or through war. Uh, they were oftentimes well-educated. Sometimes uh, it wasn't rare at all for them to be better educated than their masters. And so sometimes they were put into fairly privileged positions of authority within the household of, of, their, of their masters. Uh, they would often be tasked with training up and, and educating the children. They could have been doctors. They, they, uh, sometimes they were uh, artists and poets and things like that. Um, there was a, a wide variety of slaves in the Roman Empire. And sometimes they were just uneducated, mistreated people. Uh, sometimes they were enslaved because of their ethnicity. Uh, there are those similarities, but you got to understand that slavery was somewhat complex and it was very common. And so the Bible is not saying, hey, slavery is a good thing, so slaves, submit to your masters. The Bible is saying slavery exists, so slaves, here's how you can receive God's favor in that situation. I think there's an important question here. Why aren't, why aren't masters addressed? Why are the slaves the one that are given the command? I think that's something that I can see where somebody would object to that. Why does Peter tell the slaves to submit instead of telling the masters to treat the slaves better? Well, he doesn't. Peter doesn't say that, right? At least not in that exact passage. But the Bible certainly does. And the Bible tells uh, masters how to treat their slaves. And it tells governors how to be good good governors. And it tells husbands how to be good husbands. And so I, I I want you to understand the full picture of the biblical teaching on this subject. Colossians 13 might be helpful in verse, or I'm sorry, Colossians 3 verse, I was going to say 17, but I'm actually looking at 22 as I look at my notes here. So Colossians 3, 22, this won't be on the slides. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. This is written by Paul, very similar uh, teaching the way it starts out. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Two things that I notice about Paul's instruction to slaves. One is it sort of exalts the work of the slaves. As a slave, I mean, you can, it would be natural, it would be easy to think, oh, I'm a slave, what I do, um, nobody cares about me, it doesn't really matter. What Paul says is he says, hey, you're working for the Lord. Everything that you do, do it like you're doing it for the Lord, because ultimately, everything you do in life, you're working for Him. 
And so he actually exalts the position of the slave as being a servant of the Lord and not just a servant of a human master. But then he also gives this promise that, wrong, that wrongdoers will be paid back for whatever they have done. So if you've got a bad master who's mistreating you, hey, rest assured, God's going to bring judgment on him. He's going to pay for what he has done, for there is no favoritism. Okay. Well, there's a lot of other things that the Bible say about slavery. We're going to have to, for the sake of time, uh, limit it to those few things there. Again, I just want to emphasize the Bible does not endorse uh, or promote slavery. The Bible deals with slavery as a reality and instructs Christians, particularly in the New Testament, of course, instructs Christians on how to live in a world where that's a reality. Last and final point and the most important one. Jesus saved us by suffering unjust treatment from unrighteous people and calls us to follow his example. Why do we submit? Why are we called to submit? The answer to that is most importantly is that Jesus submitted and in doing so, he brought salvation to the world. Submission may be an offensive word to modern man, but it is the means through which Jesus saved every soul that believes in him for salvation. It is the means by which we go from a destiny apart from God in eternity into an eternal life with him through the salvation of Jesus Christ. It is through the submission. That's why I said at the beginning, submission is a powerful tool that Christians can employ to bring about God's glory, our good, and the salvation of the lost. It's through submission that Jesus saved unrighteous people like us. It's through submission that he brings salvation. He is our example in all of this. It's interesting to think about Peter, the author of this letter, because Peter once objected to the idea of submission and Jesus' suffering. He hated it. If you remember, there was a time in which uh, Jesus began to speak to his disciples before he goes to the cross, and he, he began to present to them this idea that he was going to suffer. And Peter actually pulls him aside and rebukes him. Peter rebuked Jesus. He says, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. When we oppose the idea of suffering, when we oppose the idea of submitting to those who might treat us unjustly, we are living out what Jesus accused Peter of. We are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter hated this idea of submission. He rebuked Jesus. He told Jesus that he wasn't going to suffer. That's not the way this thing was going to go down. It was Peter who, when the Jews came to arrest Jesus, actually drew his sword and and cut off the ear of one of the men who came to arrest Jesus. Peter did not like the idea of submission at all. He was ready to die before he submitted. Jesus made him put his sword away. And Jesus surrendered himself in an act of submission to those who came to kill him. I bet Peter also remembered well that just hours after Jesus humbled himself and washed his feet at the Last Supper, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus humbles himself. He gets on his knees before his disciples. He washes their feet. And Peter resisted. 
Again, Peter doesn't like this idea of submission. He resists, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said some things that changed his mind. He says, never mind, wash my feet, wash my head, wash everything, just wash it all. And God, Jesus was working in Peter's heart. He was working in Peter's heart. And a few hours later, after he washed his feet, uh, Peter, having sworn allegiance to Jesus, saying, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll, I'll go to my grave defending you. And when, when Jesus needed him the most, when Jesus was on trial before the Jews, and uh, when he was on trial before Pilate, actually, I believe it was, and they were accusing Jesus of all kinds of things he didn't do. And Jesus says, well, you know, you want me to respond, but why don't you ask the people that were with me? And he looks across the way there, and he sees Peter, and he's perhaps wondering if Peter, although he knew the answer, if Peter might finally stand up for him and do what he said he was going to do, be prepared to die for him. And Peter says, I never knew the man. When Jesus needed Peter's testimony the most, Peter was not willing to stand up and do as he had said he was willing to do. So what changed Peter? How does he go from this guy that hates submission to this one who's calling on people who would later, he, who would later give his life as a martyr not long after writing this letter? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus changed Peter. Peter saw that it was Jesus' submission, his willingness, one, to submit to God the Father and the plan that they had established that involved him coming to earth to live the perfect life, to die for our sins on the cross, and that he was willing to submit himself to unrighteous people, that he would suffer unjust treatment for unri from unrighteous people to save us from our sins. Jesus is what happened to Peter. It changed him. He saw how powerful submission was. He saw how powerful it was to obey God's will. This is what he says at the end of our passage, verse 21 and following. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted... He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live by righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It was Jesus' submission that brought salvation to Peter and to all of us who have believed since then. That's what changed Peter. The fact that Jesus became a suffering servant to save others, and now he calls us to do the same. In some peculiar way in this world, we have the opportunity to follow in Jesus' footsteps. To even when, when, when called upon, we allow ourselves to be treated unjustly by unrighteous people for the sake of God's glory, our good, and the salvation of lost souls. He calls us to do that. He modeled that for us. And as we, as we process what this means as, in today's society and our response to the government and how are Christians supposed to live in 2020? Okay, this is how Christians were called to live uh, 2,000 years ago. How do, we, how do we live this out today? I found something that D.A. Carson wrote to be very helpful. He said, if God perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian 
or an artist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin and our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. Jesus came. He submitted himself to the un unjust treatment from unrighteous people in this world in order to save our souls. And he calls us to do the same. It's not our job. It's not our job to make just every injustice. I'm not saying God doesn't call us to participate in the the furtherment of justice within our society. That's where we have to work out this tension. That's where we have to work out what exactly this means for us. What I am saying is that our primary need is not for justice in the world, but our primary need is forgiveness before God. We ought to live our lives in a way that draws other people into that forgiveness. And and understand that we're always going to live in an imperfect world until Jesus returns and until Jesus reigns supreme over all of this earth. It's going to be an imperfect world with imperfect governments and imperfect systems and all that. And we should do everything that we have opportunity to to make that better, but we should remember at the end of the day that our greatest need is a need for a Savior. And that's why God sent a Savior. He didn't send a politician. He didn't send, uh, you could say he was a revolutionary, but he wasn't a political revolutionary. He had very little interest in changing that. What he wanted to change was our relationship before God. And so he died for your sins on the cross so that you could come to God and be saved, be forgiven, and have eternal life. If you haven't received that gift of eternal life, I want to invite you to do that today. I want to invite you to put your faith in what Jesus Christ did, to begin to follow him as your Lord, and to trust him to be your Savior. Would you pray with me as we close? Father in heaven, these are difficult times in this world. It's it's confusing. It's changing every day. We want to live out our lives in a way that bring you glory, that, of course, bring us good in terms of your favor, and ultimately bring the lost to salvation. Teach us how to apply 1 Peter chapter 2. Teach us how to apply this idea of submission in our context today. Teach us how to respond to our government in a way that glorifies you and brings others into salvation. Teach us how to uh, respond to those who are in authority over us in our daily lives, much like you called slaves to submit to our masters. May we willfully, because of a consciousness of you, submit to those who are in authority over us. And God, may you be glorified in all of these things. And as you are glorified, we pray for favor and we pray for the salvation of the lost. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, next week we'll continue uh, this idea of submission and what that looks like between wives and husbands. So that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, we're looking forward to doing that together. So please join us again next week as we continue through the sermon series, Strangers on the Earth, a look at First Peter. Let's continue uh, and worship together through one more song before we close.